The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This account will begin in chapter 3, looking through verse 21. This is the very word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God and that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the world loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would send your spirit, that you would speak to us, that we would hear and understand. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. And so we come to this very interesting meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus. Most of you would be able to know who Jesus is. But Nicodemus is probably a stranger to most of you. You haven't been introduced. Nicodemus was a Jew of Jews. He was a leader within the Jewish community of his day. He was what was called a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a man of great dignity and honor, a very learned and educated man. There were, at any given time, only about 6,000 Pharisees in all of Israel. And not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, but Nicodemus was part of a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the elite of the elite. It was the inner circle, the inner council of the Pharisees. So here is Nicodemus, a great man of standing, a man of probably a wonderful and wealthy family a man who had ascended through the ranks because of his righteousness, because of his moral standing. People would have looked uh, on the street and would have gone, there goes Nicodemus. Look at wise Nicodemus. Uh, Look at Nicodemus. There he is. 
And he was a man who had done everything right in the law. And when I say the law, I'm not talking about just the Ten Commandments. The Jews had added to the law uh, many, many things that God had given to them in the Scriptures, but then added hundreds of other things on top of it. And Nicodemus, he would have been an expert in it all. And by expert, not only would he have known it so well that he could point it out in you when you failed to meet the law, he was such an expert that he would have been keeping every jot and tittle of it in his own life. And he comes to Jesus because he wants to talk to this new rabbi. This rabbi is unlike any other rabbi that he'd ever met before. Jesus was doing things, and he said it. He, he came to Jesus with a, a very formal greeting. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God. He was giving great esteem to Jesus, was honoring him. It was very formal. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus had questions. He wanted to get to know Jesus, but he wasn't confident enough. He wasn't courageous enough to do it in the middle of the day. It says he came under the clandestine cover of night. And so here's Nicodemus coming to this renegade rabbi. And we know he's a renegade rabbi because of this, the way he speaks, even in this text, because in the synagogues of the day, the rabbis would have been there, the leaders of the church would have been there, and they would have unrolled the scroll of Isaiah or Jeremiah or wherever it was, and they would have read it, and they would have been teaching on it and said, this is what I think this means. This is what we believe about Messiah. This is what we believe about this. And then the congregation would sit around and go, hmm, we'll consider that, sort of what you're doing right now. We'll consider whether there's any validity to what this guy standing up there has to say. And if you think that it's any good, you would say, and the synagogue would say, amen and amen. Truly, truly. Or if you're a good old-fashioned King James person, verily, verily. Jesus was not like any other rabbi. He didn't wait for people to determine whether what he said was true. He came out of the gates with it. Truth, truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, what I'm about to say doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. It doesn't matter the opinion poll. This is true truth. And you're going to have to deal with the true truth. You can reject it, but it's still true truth. You can accept it because it's true truth. But what I say to you, amen and amen, truly, truly, I say to you. And Nicodemus was fascinated by this guy. And he came and he wanted to talk to him. So what we're going to look at very briefly uh, this morning is a question, a problem, a solution, and a response. A question, a problem, a solution, and a response. The question is simply this. Look at how Jesus enters into this engagement. Nicodemus comes and he says, Rabbi, and he's being formal. And Jesus looks at him and answers a question that hasn't been asked. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a non sequitur. Nicodemus didn't ask, how is it that I get to enter the kingdom of God? But Jesus, with Nicodemus, knowing at the end of chapter 24, it said that, or at the end of chapter 2 in, in John, it says that Jesus knew the heart of men. He knew what was going on inside them. He knew their thoughts before they were having them. He knew the questions that they had. He knows currently what's really rattling around within the depth of your soul. He knows the profound questions that you had, and he knew that with Nicodemus. He knew that Nicodemus didn't just want to meet a rabbi, he needed to meet a savior. 
And Nicodemus' most profound question was this. I have done absolutely everything under the law. I am a man of prestige. I am a man of dignity. I am a man of clout. I am a man of respect in my community. I am a righteous man, yet I am not convinced that I'm going to get into the kingdom. I'm not sure that what I've done is enough at the end of the day because I lack peace, I lack a sense of contentment. I don't understand forgiveness. There is something in my soul that is keeping me from being satisfied. And Jesus, knowing this, goes right to him and says, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. He answers a question that isn't even asked. Friends, for some of you, you are here with deep and profound questions. And I want you to know that the God of the universe already knows them. He knows them. And here's the deal. He loves you so much that he's willing to give you an answer. As one who has true truth. He can give you an answer that this culture can't give you. He is going to give you an answer that religion in general isn't going to give you. He will give you the true answer of how it is that you can find peace in your life, how you can find and understand forgiveness, how you can live with courage, how you can do all of these things, how you can have a sense at night that you would be able to sing as you teach our children, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take that you can go to sleep every single night with an absolute assurance that that's the case because you have come with your question to the king. And the king goes, I know how to get you in to the kingdom. It's my kingdom. And by the way, it's a really simple solution. But before you get to the solution, you have to work through the problem. See, the question is, how do I get into the kingdom? The question for you in your life, the deepest question that you're asking, is the question that has driven philosophy and has driven, driven all religion for all ages. What happens to me when I die? Is this life all there is? Have I done enough? On whatever scale of justice that you've created in your world, at whatever scale that you've accepted from this world, it is basically saying, do I have enough? Have I done enough good? Have I done enough good? to get me through at the end of the day. But here's the problem. The problem comes over in verse 19. Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. All of us would admit that there is a problem with humanity. Would you all admit that today? Most of you? Humanity not the person in your seat. I'm sure that's what you meant by that. But all of us would admit that there is a problem with humanity. The issue is not the agreement that there is a problem, but an agreement on what the problem actually is. We would all agree that humanity is messed up, that humanity is racked and ravaged by something. Some would say by evil, But most of the world wouldn't say, most of humanity wouldn't say that there are evil people. They would say that there are good people who occasionally do evil things. That there is a a bad person is just simply a good person who does bad things. It's not really bad. It's it's a picture of if I walked in and I had a, a doctor with me and you had a stomach ache, 
And I looked at you and went, well, you probably had a bad burrito last night. Just cut back on all the, on the fried food and did that because I knew you had a problem. And the doctor would agree with me that there was a problem. But he would come or she would come and would press around and would go, is this where it hurts? I don't know where the appendix is. Somewhere in here. But they press around over here. Yeah, good. Looking at a medical professional going, help me out. They press and go, is that where it is? And the doctor would go, you need to get to the emergency room right now because your appendix is about to burst, and if it bursts, you're going to go septic, and if you go septic, you may not work, you may not make it through. We both diagnosed that there was a problem, but it was a different diagnosis of what the actual problem was. Friends, the world will tell you that the problem isn't evil, and it's not sin, and it's not you. It would say it's the systems of the world, the repressive regimes, the repressive church, the tyrannical uh, different systems that are in the world that keep you from being who you are uh, and are so bad that you just can't express and live your best self, that that's the problem. And if we just throw away all boundary and just allow people to be who they are, then people can be free to enjoy the good life. That's working brilliantly around the world in those regimes, by the way. Because what we see when we go to the true doctor is Jesus comes in and his diagnosis is this. I agree there's a problem, but here's the problem. It's evil. It's moral. It is not systemic. It is not institutional. It is not that your dad didn't hug you enough. It is not that you were abused. It is not uh, that you grew up under a Republican president or a Democratic president, or you grew up in this regime or that regime. The problem is in here. You're the problem. Cheer up. You want to know the problem in the world? It's sitting in your seat, and it's standing on this stage. That's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, Verily, verily, I say to you, here's true truth and what the world is saying. And some of you are going, I don't agree with that. Okay, fine. Well, keep working with righteousness and religion and good morality. But it can never, ever deal with the problem of the heart. It can never deal with the problem of evil. We can never do enough good. Martin Luther, the wonderful... um, priest and reformer in the church in the 1500s said that I obeyed God. I obeyed God. And I hated him because he was a slave master who was never able to be satisfied. Nothing he could do would ever satisfy God in his mind. And he had done a lot of good. And so we recognize that we have these profound questions of what do I do with me? What do I do with my life? What's the meaning of all of this? And then we're going to have to wrestle, and you're going to have to wrestle with what is the problem. And you can blame everything else, and you can reform every single thing. You can do whatever you want to do, and guess what? You're going to find that the same problem, it resides because it's in the heart of the individual. That's what the king of the universe, the God who created you, says. He knows. And so this God doesn't say, yep, you got a terminal illness. Sorry. No, he says, I'm going to give you a solution. And it's the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The God of this universe 
looked down upon our brokenness and didn't leave us within our brokenness. He is not looking at the profundity of your questions and saying, good question. I'm glad you asked and moves on. He said, I'm so thankful that you asked. I'm so thankful that you're starting to now wrestle with the moral issue that's there, the very heart of the issue, which is your heart. I tell every single young couple who wants to get married, I tell them the problem in your marriage is seated in your seat. You have a selfish heart that wants what you want, when you want it, how you want it, right? And the problem is you're married to a person just like you. And so you're two ticks and no hound dog. You're going to suck the life out of each other, and you're going, I'm not getting enough. Give me more, give me more, give me more. And then when that person you have absolutely evaporated because of your desperate need for everything that they can't provide for you, you move on to somebody else. Jesus is saying in the midst of your marriage, and he's saying in the midst of your life, I have to be in the middle of it because I'm the source. I'm the solution to the problem that plagues you. Jesus Christ came into the world to live the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved to die. And then he rose from the grave, glorious, on the third day, and is now presenting to the Father his completed work on your behalf. You see, friends, we love to talk about the cross, right? Everybody wears crosses. Anybody have an empty tomb cross? necklace. Charles Hodge, one of the finest systematic theologians of all time, one of the great Princeton theologians, wrote in his systematic theology 127 pages on the death of Jesus Christ. 127 pages of his systematic theology. You know how many he wrote on the resurrection? Four. We don't ever talk about the resurrection. We talk about the cross, but friends, it is the cross of Christ and the tomb of Christ. That and is the most important word. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, then we're still dead in our sins. That's what Paul said. Most to be pitied in all of the world. But it's the and. Sam Alberry, a pastor and theologian, wrote this. Many Christians, while believing in the resurrection and rehearsing that belief every Easter, like we're doing today, what we then effectively do is stick it back in the drawer for the rest of the year, for we are at a loss to know what to do with it. Friends, the resurrection is the key to understanding what Paul said, that we are called to live by the power of his resurrection. It is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that then takes this truth, penetrates it into your heart, embeds it there, forgives you, and then you begin to live out of that reality. Put very simply, I didn't come up with this. I'm borrowing it from a friend. This is the reality. Christ, we lost it all. Christ did it all, and we gain it all. If you want a simple way to understand the gospel, if you're new to the church, maybe tipping your toe back in, that's it. We lost it all. That's the moral failing. Christ did it all on our behalf, and then we gain it all. And you know what we have to do to gain it? You know what you need to do? Nothing. Isn't that awesome? Growing up in my home, we're about to have Easter dinner. I'm sure many of you are about to have a big Easter dinner. You couldn't get food unless you asked for it. Jesus is going, I'm going to give it to you, and some of you aren't even going to ask for it. Because it's a mystery of how this happens. 
That's what he says here. We know that the wind blows, and I'm going to do a work in your heart. I'm going to do this. Yes, we have to believe, but that belief is a gift of God, is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. Think about the thief on the tree. I posted on my Facebook page a, a little snippet from Alistair Begg, one of the great sermons uh, on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he said, because the man in the middle said so, and he's talking about the, the thief who came to faith, and he gets to heaven, and the angels go, how did you get here? He goes, I don't know. He goes, well, tell me about your doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone for salvation alone. I've never heard of it. What about your understanding? What version of the Bible do you have? I don't have a Bible. All I know is that the man on the middle cross said so. And I get to go to heaven. Friends, that's the mystery of faith. That is the solution. And our response is simply to believe. It's to believe that truth, that Christ has done it all for you. And you're probably sitting there, and I'm going to wrap up with this. Bill, I'm just not a person of faith. You're a liar. You are a person of faith. Every single person seated in this room and every person listening online right now is a person of faith. The question is, what have you placed your faith in? Well, Bill, I'm just not a religious person. Yes, you are. The Latin root of the word religion is to be bound to something, and every single person is bound to something. The question is, what have you bound yourself to? What is your object of faith? And friends, my desire for you today is to move that place from whatever else this world is offering. Like Nicodemus, you may have it all. But deep down inside, that question is gnawing away at you. I'll end with this illustration that I've given before. It's the illustration of Charles Blondin, that crazy man who in 1859 would walk across Niagara Falls 160 feet above the falls on a tightrope. He did it blindfolded. He did it uh, hopping across in a sack one time. He did it on stilts. Uh, another time, one time they even uh, know that and accounted that he did it with a little stove or oven uh, in front of him cooking eggs, walking across. And then he did it with a wheelbarrow, blindfolded. He went across and came back. And then he asked the crowds who were just amazed, do you think I can do this with a person in the wheelbarrow? And everybody said, yes. And he said, any volunteers? And sadly, for too many of you who are in the church, you believe that Jesus can get you to heaven, but you have not placed your belief in him. You have not gotten in the wheelbarrow. The question today is, will you get in the wheelbarrow? Will you do it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the goodness that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you for Easter, that there's an empty tomb somewhere somewhere outside of Jerusalem. And that tomb is empty because Christ isn't in it. His body wasn't stolen. It didn't decay into dust. It is empty because on the third day he rose from the dead and he came and lived and dwelt among us and then ascended into heaven and he is going to return again one day. And then in the meantime, he gave us the opportunity to solve the problem by believing in him. What a gift. Father, for those who are here today and that gnawing question is still underneath, I pray 
that they would come and find the answer in you. We give you praise today that Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Amen.